you're new with us, we are uh, working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and today we come to uh, what is for some uh, a familiar passage of scripture, and let's pray today for uh, the Lord to open up our eyes to see it afresh. Perhaps it's not new to you, and you're uh, not a Christian yet. This is also a wonderful uh, text for you to consider, uh, and so let's uh, pray together now, shall we? Lord Jesus, I pray you would come talk to us. Come address us from your word. We would recognize that your word comes to us with the same kind of authority and power as it did when you were on that boat teaching. And I pray that today we would be attentive to your word and not just attentive to it, but transformed by it. And we pray this in your good name. Amen. Well, this is uh, the calling of the disciples, particularly uh, the calling of Simon Peter. And Luke uh, gives us here uh, two of his overarching concerns in this section of Luke's gospel. And those concerns um, involve, A, who Jesus chooses to associate with, and then B, the need to rightly respond to the call of Christ. He zooms in on Peter. The kind of guy that he would choose to associate with is a self-professed sinful man, a very ordinary man, a fisherman. And he calls Peter to himself, and Peter rightly responds to the call of Christ, leaving everything to follow him. And Peter's story now prepares us for what is to come in some following stories in the Gospels, namely this idea that Jesus gives attention to the sick and to sinners. Jesus makes outsiders insiders. Meanwhile, the self-righteous religious types who think they're insiders are actually shown to be outsiders. And this theme really breaks the surface in next week's passage when Jesus calls the the, the despised tax collector Levi to himself, and Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. Now, you know what that means? It means that Jesus came for you. You say, how do I know he came for me? Because he came for sinners. That's how I know he came for you and he came for me. It's not just for someone else today. It's for you. Often I think it's easy to to hear certain sermons or Bible studies and just assume it's for someone else. I want you to hear loud and clear today that this is for you. This call to follow Jesus is for you. There was a a play on the west end of England where a man and uh, a wife, the curtain goes up and they're sitting at a a table and uh, there is a telephone in between them, uh, back when we used to have phones in our homes, uh, and they would ring. uh, And they're sitting across from each other and the phone rings and the guy is supposed to pick up the phone and, and begin the first lines of the play. But for the life of him, he can't remember what the lines are. Kind of my worst nightmare as a preacher, I have all the time. I get up and I have nothing to say. He doesn't know what to do, so he just lets the phone keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And finally he picks it up and he answers it, and then he gives it to his wife and says, it's for you. (laughs) The call of Christ is for you. This call to follow him is for people like Simon Peter and Levi and Zacchaeus and you and I. Now, recall Luke's purpose in the opening of his gospel. He's writing to his friend Theophilus, and we said it's quite possible that Theophilus is the one who funded the whole research project that that Luke went on. 
We don't know exactly all of, his, uh, all of his background, but we do know that he was either not yet a believer, a follower of Jesus, or he was a very young one. And Luke is writing to Theophilus, and now by extension to all of us, and saying this call, Theophilus, is for you. He has shown Theophilus, and he's shown every reader of his gospel, many true things about Jesus up to this point. We've seen Jesus, his miraculous birth take place, Jesus be the fulfillment of all of these promises and prophecies. We've seen Jesus do remarkable healings, cast out demons. We've seen him overcome the evil one in the wilderness. And now, with the call of Simon Peter, he gives every Theophilus in the world a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says, hey guys, this is for you. Now, at this point, Peter is not a stranger to Jesus, nor are the disciples. They've uh, listened to him preach. They've watched him perform miracles. But now, a a life-changing event is about to happen in the life of Simon Peter. And through it, we as his followers now also see uh, what, what we're to be about when it comes to the mission of Christ, of catching people for him. So from this passage, I want you to see four timeless principles for followers of Jesus. Number one, hear the word of Christ. Number two, see the power of Christ. Number three, confess your sin to Christ. And number four, respond to the call of Christ. First of all, we hear the word of Christ, verses one to three. Peter becomes a follower of Jesus in the context of hearing God's word. This is how following Jesus begins and how it continues. By this time, Jesus' reputation has been growing as a teacher, and now it says in verse 1 that a great crowd was pressing in to hear him preach and teach the word of God. Luke said he's in Gennesaret, that is another name for Galilee. Luke calls it a lake, other writers call it a sea. I think it largely depends on how much travel uh, one had done. That it, it's not a sea, it's actually a, a large lake. Um, but nevertheless, um, there it was a really big body of water and a very uh, important body of water, this key place for fishing. This was Peter's home area. And you got this large crowd wanting to hear the Son of God bring the Word of God. Now the phrase, the Word of God, only appears interestingly one time in Matthew and Mark, but it appears 20 times in Luke Acts. In Luke, Jesus is preaching the word of God. He's telling people about the kingdom. In Acts, the church is preaching the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. We see the phrase over and over in the book of Acts, the word of God continue to increase and multiply. When Paul goes into Ephesus, he teaches for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and a great revival breaks out. People are burning their magic books. And at the conclusion of it, Luke says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I've always been struck by that phrase. He doesn't say the apostle Paul continued to increase and prevail mightily, but that the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. Messengers come and go, but the message carries on. The message is timeless. Messengers are replaceable. It's the word of God that we must be about It's the word of God that continues to increase and multiply. As Paul says, you can't chain it, right? Verse 2, Jesus spots these two boats, uh, but the fishermen were not in them as we read that they were washing their nets. So they had spent a a whole night uh, fishing using what is called a trammel net. Very, very hard work involved laying out this great net in a semicircle encompassing over 100 feet. 
and then drawing it in over and over and over again. These were not weak men. Uh, these were some, some, some tough dudes. And they toiled all night. And now they begin this tedious work of, of washing their nets, of getting all of, all of the debris out of them. And so due to the difficulty of hearing, verse 3, Jesus looked for a way to amplify his voice. Now oh, there you go. Like, the sound matters. Um, sound people in the church matter. Jesus doesn't have the luxury of having one of these Garth Brooks mics. He's got to um, come up with a creative way to, uh, to, to get his voice to carry. And so Jesus does a couple of creative things, it seems. He, one, uses a floating pulpit uh, in this boat uh, that he takes. He, he tells Peter to, to put it out for a bit. And he uses the lake and, uh, and the hillside as this sort of natural sound system. There's no way to be certain exactly where he was on this lake, but I've been there on a few occasions, and it's probably, possibly I should say, halfway between Capernaum and Tagba, where the, the land slopes upward. A lot of people think that's where the Sermon on the Mount was given as well. And the voice carries, for, for a, could reach several thousand people. And wherever it is, Jesus is, is on this boat, and now he is teaching from the boat. And this is how discipleship begins and how it continues, hearing the word of Christ and responding rightly to it. This means for us practically engaging in the sermon, engaging in Bible study, engaging in your own personal Bible study, but doing more than that, to actually receive it as the word of God. I always love how Paul says to the Thessalonians, he commends the church for this. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You receive it as God's word, and when you do, it begins to do work in you. You see, there's a hearing of a message, and there's a hearing of faith. There's a hearing with the, the right kind of response. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that the, the gospel came to you in power. Right? Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of a, a man who was so struck by a sermon that he preached, he listened to it 30 times, back when we used to have cassette tapes. And he said that the guy was not a believer, but he was struck by several things in the message. And he, he listened to it over and over again. And on the 30th play, he repented and trusted in Christ and became his follower. Hearing the word of Christ, responding to it, this is how it all begins. But there is a tendency in our hearts to sort of to let it ricochet off of our hearts or to uh, do as the teachers used to do in class. I don't know if you ever experienced this where teachers are teaching and that's fine, but then when they start calling volunteers up to the, to the blackboard, you, you start you know, getting down in the seat. You, you, you don't want to be called on because you don't know the, the, how to do the math or whatever uh, they're asking you to do. Or I've been in uh, New Orleans before where these guys who do, they dance and they do all the gymnastics and flips. And it's very interesting until they start calling people out of the crowd. And that's when I leave, leave the scene because I want no, no part of whatever they're going to ask me to do. Some dude's going to jump over me or, you know, something like that. We can do this. We can have this tendency with God's word, assuming it's not for us. And Luke is saying it's for you. To hear the word of Christ and respond to it. Secondly, we need to see the power of Christ as P. 
Peter saw it on this day. We don't know how engaged Peter was at the teaching. It's interesting that it says in verse 4, after he was finished speaking, he now turns to Peter. (laughs) One wonders how, how engaged Peter was previously. Nevertheless, Jesus in his grace does something to get Peter's attention. Now, Peter had seen Jesus' power previously, hadn't he? But this was different. And I think this is, this is significant. This time, what is different is not just the kind of miracle that happens, but it's the location. Jesus meets Peter at his vocation. He meets Peter at his strength. He meets him where he lives, where he works. I was thinking about my own conversion in in college. It was through the witness of a baseball teammate. Like, my life was transformed in the thing that I was doing every single day of my life. And it's kind of like that here where, where Peter is addressed by Jesus on his boat at his lake and he shows him something that he had never in all of his days as a kid and as a young teenager, and he had never seen before. As he says to him, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And you just love Peter's responses all the way through the gospel. When he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word we'll let down our nets. What's he saying here? Well, for one, he's saying he's tired, I think. <laughs> he's been, t- he's like, what do you mean fish more? I'm exhausted. I've been up all night. But I think there's more there. I think Peter is, is implying, as, as he was, a skilled fisherman. Like, uh, these guys were successful small business owners. We often paint the uh, disciples as being poor. That, that would not call them poor. But they, they, were, they had a small business. Uh, you can pick up clues throughout the gospel that it was a successful business. And so Peter knew what he was doing. He knew what it was like to catch fish. So at this point, he's probably thinking something like, what does this carpenter know about fishing? Like, I know Jesus knows more Bible than me. He can teach me the Bible, but he's not teaching me fishing. You know, can I trust this guy? Preaching is one thing, but telling me how to fish is another. It kind of reminded me one time we went to Myrtle Beach on a vacation. And uh, it was about 140 degrees outside. And, um, and, and uh, Joshua, who, who uh, was out in the water, and he came running back, and he says, Papa, there's sharks in the water. I'm like, man, there are no sharks in the water. Like, get back out there and, uh, and, and enjoy, your, enjoy your fun, you know. Just go swim. And I, he, he wouldn't get in, and, I, and other people started looking in the water, and so I went out to look, and behold, there were sharks in the water. Like, uh... <laughs> There were these uh, pool sharks, you know, they're small sharks. And so I was like, this, but people were still swimming. And um, so I go over to the lifeguard and I was like, hey, pal, do you know that there are sharks in the water? And he goes, no big bite. <laughs> and I was like, no big bite? Like, how about no bite? Okay, we, we, we're looking for a bite-free vacation, okay? Um, and then I said, hey, where are you from? And he said, Poland. I was like, can I trust the lifeguard from Poland, you know, at Myrtle Beach, telling me no big bite? Um, It's kind of like that, I think, here with Peter. Like, he knows how to fish. And who is Jesus to say, you know what, you should throw out into the deep. Because this was not only, um, it it was foolish in terms of fishing. 
because the fishermen fished at night. That's when you caught the fish, especially in the deep. But Jesus is the master of every situation. Peter's learning here that Jesus is not just the expert in the synagogue. He's in the expert of all of life. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, application for us here when it comes to our vocation. You, you may think, Jesus is one thing to tell me how to be saved, but leave my business to me, right? You can tell me how to go to heaven, but leave the lawyering to me. Leave the school teaching to me. No, we need to listen to Jesus because he is the Lord of all creation, the Lord over all. And Peter here gets a lesson on that. And you've got to commend him, though, because he does do it. Reluctantly, he says, at your word, I'll do it. Reluctant faith is still faith. <laughs> your faith may be really weak right now. But there's still an obedience here in Simon Peter. And there is the remarkable result in verse 6 that they catch so many fish that it says that the nets were breaking. The people might have thought to themselves, Jesus here has control over the fish of the sea just like Yahweh had control over the frogs, over the flies. He's Lord over nature. It's also thinking about Adam's first task. You know that Adam was tasked to, to uh, exercise dominion. What is the first thing he's told to give dominion over? The fish of the sea. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.26, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Here is the second Adam, exercising total dominion over the fish of the sea. They have to call in a second boat, don't they? Verse 7. These boats, you can still see boats from this day. They've uh, remarkably uh, pulled one out. You can still see pictures of it uh, online. They're about 20 feet long. And they haul in all of these fish. And all of it is accomplished by the power of Jesus' word. And I think what Jesus is doing in, the, in this miracle, like he does in other miracles, there's more than just the miracle going on. Other things are being conveyed, and I think one of them is this, is emblem, this will be emblematic of the rest of their lives, that they will catch people by Jesus' power. Droves of people will come to faith in Jesus Christ, not because of the disciples' acumen and power, but by Jesus' power. And that, my friend, is how we will make disciples. Yes, we need training. Yes, we need to be wise in our witness, but we need power. We need Jesus to exercise dominion. And so we see Jesus' power here. Thirdly, a follower of Jesus confesses their sin to Christ. Peter is aware of a couple of things. Number one, Jesus is awesome. And number two, he's not. <laughs> he recognizes the sinfulness of sin. Verse 8, there's an awareness of Jesus' glory as he falls down at Jesus' knee. Jesus has met him in the place where, where Peter knew best, he, where Peter was an expert, and he proved his power in his life. And so after seeing the authority of Christ, he senses the holiness of Christ. And his response is that, like that of John when, in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees the glorified Christ when John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Notice how Peter does not respond here. He doesn't respond with some cocky attitude. 
Look how many fish I caught. You didn't catch Jack. Jesus caught those fish, right? If, Jesus, if, if we accomplish anything in our lives, we need to remember that. It's through the power of Jesus. He doesn't respond with some arrogance, nor does he respond with just a worldly uh, kind of business response of, Jesus, we can make a lot of money. <laughs> that would have went through my mind. What about yours? Jesus, would you like to join our fishing business? <laughs> like I've, I've got a wonderful plan. He responds in absolute awe. And I think this is really the key to living on mission, being in awe of Jesus, sensing the power of Jesus. I mean, if you're not impressed with Jesus, it's kind of irrelevant to talk about the mission of Jesus. It's when you're in awe of Jesus that you want to tell others about him. That's where mission begins. And he's aware of his own sin, isn't he? Peter's response is, is not, well, I'm a lousy fisherman. His response is, I'm a sinful man. And I, don't you love how, how, how comprehensive that confession is? It's not just, I, I've sinned a couple times with my mouth. You know, I had a few moral missteps. No, all of me is sinful. There's a totalness to his confession. And it's quite striking when you look at it that there's nothing in this whole passage about sin. And yet it's an appropriate confession, isn't it? As he is up against the holiness of Christ, he responds like Isaiah, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or like Job, after Job is protesting and, and God lays him out with a gazillion questions. <laughs> Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth and so on? And Job says, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a humility here in Simon Peter, a humility that should mark all of us. And this humility is also recognized in his confession as he calls Jesus Lord. Depart from me, Lord. The Lord has been employed now 30 times in the Gospel of Luke, each time referring to the Lord God. Peter is sense sensing here what is true about Jesus Christ. And this is a confession of, of faith in the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter is seeing here is that he's small and Jesus is big. And that, my friend, is the real key. This is what makes the difference. When you're small and Jesus is big, big things can happen. But when you're big and Jesus is small, then you're a walking disaster zone. We need to see Jesus the way Peter sees Jesus. This powerful miracle, this moment on the sea, rocked him to his core. And consequently now he responds, verses 10 and 11, rightly to the call of Christ. And notice a few things about this call. First of all, it's a gracious calling. It's a gracious calling. Peter says to Jesus, depart from me. I, I, I can't have you in my presence. I'm a sinful man. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll leave. You're not worthy to be in my presence. And that would be true. But what, did, what does he say? Fear not. This is the wonder of grace. This is great grace. Jesus doesn't crush him. He lifted him. It wasn't because Jesus wasn't worthy of fear. He is. 
But it's more like uh, in the Old Testament when God says to Jacob in Genesis 46, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. There I will make you a great nation. Peter, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm not crushing you. I'm not rejecting you. I'm with you. Later, Jesus knew that he would go to the cross and pay the penalty for Peter's sin. We are great sinners, and Jesus is a greater Savior. Peter thinks he's too guilty to be used by the Lord. Do you? Jesus selects these disciples by his grace. Later, he says in John 15, you did not choose me, I chose you. Jesus takes ordinary folk, makes them his disciples. You know, some have said in the call of disciples before Jesus chose them because they had a good career for being disciples. I think that totally misses the point. Jesus did not choose them because of anything that they brought to the table. Quite the contrary. Socially, they were Galileans. They had an accent. They were not of noble birth. Personally, we know from reading the Gospels, they were at times arrogant, ethnocentric. They bickered. They com competed. And Jesus used them. And his plan hasn't changed today, church. Apart from Jesus' grace, what we would hear from him is, depart from me. But what we hear is, come to me. Follow me. We may at times feel like we're too guilty to be used by Jesus, too guilty to be in his presence. And this is why Jesus came. We have a mediator. We have one who covers us. He pursues us. He didn't come to call the self-righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. And the good news of this calling is this. Jesus never turns his back on a person who confesses their sin and turns to him. That's all he asks. He will never turn his back. This is a gracious calling. Secondly, it's a purposeful calling. He doesn't send Peter away. He actually tells him, I got work for you to do, pal. From now on, here is going to be a pivotal moment in your life, Peter. You've got an entirely new business, an entirely new mission. You're going to be catching men. The verb for catching here is a word that means to capture alive. The same verb that was used in the hunting and of war, of like capturing prisoners of war. But here it's used in a positive sense. Peter is going to rescue people from eternal danger. He's going to catch people alive. This idea describes the, the sort of thing that Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 when he says that unbelievers are ensnared by the devil. That I want you to go rescue them from danger. Normally fishermen catch fish to eat them. He said, Peter, you've got a new kind of fishing. You're going to catch people so that they can live. You're going to bring them into this heavenly shore of heaven. And all you've got to do is pick up the book of Acts and read and see how these guys were pretty good at this. By Jesus' power, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in response to Peter's sermon, some people were caught. The word of God continues to increase and abound. And as we read those stories, we say, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Don't you want to catch some people? Don't you want to rescue people from danger? Don't you want to see people celebrate the grace that we celebrate today? And this calling... This calling to follow Jesus and this calling to, to catch people, this calling to mission, to evangelism, 
is for every Christian. This is part of ordinary discipleship that we do this. So let's not leave it to uh, the skilled or the, uh, you know, the special forces Christians. This is for every Christian. I love how Tim Keller puts it. The church is often like a football stadium where 22 people need rest and thousands of people need exercise. <laughs> well, let's get some exercise, eh? There's a lot of fish to be caught in RDU. I mean, we just keep getting more fish in this pond, don't we? And we have a lot of fishermen here. And like fishing, you never know what you're going to catch. You may catch nothing. That happens a lot in evangelism. But you keep fishing, don't you? And like fishing in evangelism, we, we should cast the net far and wide. We use multiple kinds of approaches. Bible studies, talking to people at work, at school, serving others, using media, writing books, supporting international missionaries, praying for unbelievers. Don't let failures in the past keep you from fishing. Don't let timidity keep you from fishing. Jesus calls us out to be energetic witnesses for him. And this is finally a costly calling. Verse 11, it says that they left everything and followed Jesus. They were changed in this moment, weren't they? This was a moment of decision. As he says to Peter, this is for you. This is my calling for you. And he hears his word. He sees his power. He confesses his sin. And now he responds to his call. And we too have to be willing to let go of things to follow Jesus. It does not mean that all of us will leave our vocations in some way to follow Jesus, but we must let go of selfish ambition, sinful He basically says to all of us, sign at the bottom, and then I'm going to fill in the details for you. And it gets worked out differently for all of us, but we're to follow Jesus. I've always loved the scene in John 21 where Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to basically die on a cross. And he goes, what about John? <laughs> you know, John's he's got sensible shoes on, little, he's the golden boy, right? He, he's, he's got nice hair. He went to Duke, you know. <laughs> I'm playing dookies. Um, and, he, and, and he says, I've got a thing for John too. Peter, you run your race. John's going to run his race. But they all left everything to follow him. And our lives take all sorts of twists and turns. But we're to follow Jesus, right? As Luther put it in the hymn, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Let it go and follow him. Well, let me summarize some takeaways here very practically. Five quick words on mission, and I do mean quick. Number one, passion. When it comes to following Jesus' call in mission, what is often lacking is not training. What is often lacking is not resources. It's the heart. We commend what we cherish. We talk about that which we love. You know, I had a birthday this past week. 
There's one kid in here wished me a happy 32nd birthday. I do appreciate that. And I had the most amazing steak. And I have told almost 100 people probably about that steak. <laughs> a big ribeye, cowboy cut, 22-ouncer. Praise God. <laughs> I even gave Matt, Matt Steele a bite of my steak, only because I couldn't finish it. But we talk about that which we love. And when it comes to evangelism, sharing our faith, we're not going to say taste and see that the Lord is good unless we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. So be nourished by that which you're holding out to others. Secondly, prayer. When it comes to mission, here's an area all of us can be engaged. Praying for unbelievers. Are you praying for those who are not Christians? What are their names? Take them before the Lord this week, in this moment. Re remember that Jesus has power dominion over all. Ask him to rescue those who are perishing. Thirdly, friendship. We'll look at more of this in the upcoming weeks, but are you befriending people who don't know Christ? Are you spending time with them, caring for them, listening to them, hanging with them, inviting them? Let's be like Jesus, friends of sinners. as people who, who were befriended by others before we came to faith. Fourthly, community. One of the best evangelism tools we have is by living out the one another's in community. I know this because this is what Jesus said. In John 13, 34, 35, he says, by this people will know you're my disciples. How? Well, you have a fish on your car. Or by the way you uh, vote. Or by how much you know about the Christian subculture. No. People will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. And so let's be reminded of that. What do they see when they see us? Do they see this kind of love? Do they imagine themselves being part of that community? Desiring to be part of that community? Finally, perseverance. Keep doing these four. Don't stop praying. If you've stopped praying, let's renew that commitment today. Don't stop sowing the seeds of the gospel. Don't stop befriending those who are unbelievers. Don't stop, church, sending and supporting missionaries. Don't feel like if you're not a missionary or going into vocational ministry that you're somehow inferior. You know, I, I've become convicted by not expressing this enough that we lay a lot of emphasis on those who go and praise God. But you know what we need also? Not just people who are sent. We need people who are staying. <laughs> like, please stay. <laughs> and your staying is important for the mission around the world. What we get to take part in in this church is really remarkable. But it's only so because we have people who are, who are faithful, who are committed, who give, who pray, who send and care. Don't stop doing that. Don't lose heart. Because, church, we're almost home. We're almost finished with this mission. We don't, some of us don't have many more birthdays. And we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to recognize it was all worth it. It was all worth it. We didn't get to see him like Peter did. But one day our faith will end in sight. And we will.
people like us will be there. And we're saying, how on earth did we get there? We're there because Jesus chose us. Jesus is gracious to us. Jesus has welcomed us. Praise God. Father, thank you for your word today. Even now, Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper and deepen our gratitude and our awe of you as we reflect on what you have done to deal with sinful men and women, how you have made us righteous in the sight of God through your atoning death. We thank you, and thank you for the purpose you give us in this life of making disciples wherever we are. I pray you would give us much grace. We would not grow weary in well-doing, but we would continue persevering in the faith by your grace. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.